0: My name is Jasper. It is my honor to serve as the associate pastor here at New Life Community Church. It's good to see everybody today. I want to welcome any guests that may be visiting with us. It is good to have you as well. And so we are, we are glad that you are here today. Uh, we are going to be continuing on in a series that we have been doing through the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of James chapter 4. Now, I don't, want to, I don't want to try to provide a recap of everything we've covered so far. It would just take too long. Uh, but I do want to remind you uh, that the book of James is a book that was written to Christians. It was written to Christians going through persecution, going through trials and tribulations. And so the book of James is very, very practical. It was written in a way to be taken and applied. It's not just a lot of heady theology and thoughts about life or or even doctrine. It's, hey, this is what you should be doing as followers of Christ. If you say that you're a believer, you should be doing these things. And so this entire book is very, very practical. So keep that in mind as we look at today's text. Today, in James chapter 4, we're going to be starting at verse 13. And we are going to be looking at wealth. We're going to be talking about the different dangers that can come with it. And we're going to be looking at how Christians should approach it, how we should treat it. And we're talking about money in particular, but not just money. It, it could be anything that the Lord has blessed us with. It could be our time, our talent, our treasure. It could be all of those things, but particularly money. And this is addressed at, or, or to, wealthy people. It's addressed to people at the time that would be considered wealthy. So these warnings and everything we're going to talk about is particularly applicable to those who are wealthy, wealthier than the rest. So before we dive in, let me pray. I'm going to pray that as we do this, that God speaks through his word. Amen. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. And God, we are grateful to be gathered together in your house. Lord, we pray now as we open your word that you speak to us through it, that you open our eyes and our ears to hear what you would have us hear, that you pierce our hearts with your truth, and that when we leave this place, we can take what we've read and what we've learned and we can apply it to our lives. And so speak to us now as we read from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So again, James chapter 4, starting at verse 13. If you are able, will you please stand with me as we read from God's Word. So James chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You may be seated. So, There is a little bit of debate, but most scholars agree that this passage that we have just read, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, is addressed to two different people groups, okay? So, the the first part that we're going to look at, uh, chapter 4, the end of it, 13 through 17, is addressed to Christians, okay? The second part, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5, is addressed to non-Christians, And we're going to talk about how we can know these things. But this is important to remember as we read these verses, talk about this, and look at how to apply it. So there are going to be different applications to be made, but the theme here, like I've mentioned, is the sins of the wealthy, the dangers that come with it, how we should treat it, and so on. So let's dive in and take a look. So right out of the gate in chapter 4, uh, verse 13, James, in writing this book, typically Typically, when he is addressing fellow Christians, we'll open with brethren or dear brothers or something like that. That's a way that you know he's addressing fellow Christians. But in here, in this, he opens with, come now, you who say... And then dot, dot, dot. Now, this is opening with this, opening with like, come now, you who say this or that. This is a rebuke. This is James's way of scolding these people. This would be the same... As if someone today told you, look here, now look here. You know, anytime a parent or a grandparent starts with that, you know you are in trouble. So if you hear the look here thing, you know to pay attention. And that's exactly what James is doing. He's saying, come now, listen here. And, and then he proceeds to do what he's about to do. In the original languages, again, this would be a tone of rebuke. And he starts with this hypothetical scenario. Of going to such and such a city to make a profit. So the people he's addressing, these were wealthy business people, okay? They were good at making money. They were confident in their ability to make money, not not just to do business, but to make a profit in doing their business, okay? So so these were people that were really, really sure of themselves, and they're bragging about it. They're saying in in this scenario that he lays out that, hey, we're going to go to such and such city, we're going to do some business and we're going to get rich. We're going to make a profit. Like it's done. It's in the books. We know this is going to happen. But he reminds them, you do not know what tomorrow holds. Your life is just a mist. Some translations say a vapor. A way of thinking of this is a puff of smoke. Okay, so you see it and then it just disappears. It's gone that quickly. Now he has already pointed this out, Back in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, he said, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We also see this same idea expressed in 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25, it says all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then one last one in Psalm 90 verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80, but yet their span is toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So we know that scripture teaches us that life is short that it's just a mist, that we're here today and gone tomorrow. And James is saying, who do you think you are to assume that you're going to go and you're going to make profit and you're going to trade and you're going to do all these things and you're so sure of yourself? Who are you? You don't know any of that. You don't know that you're going to wake up tomorrow. You are not God. You're not omniscient. You're not all-knowing. You're not all-powerful. You have no idea what is going to happen tomorrow. And he points this out in verse 15. He tells them, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. Now you notice, he pointed out in that, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. He could have just said, Instead, you ought to say, If God wills, we'll go and we'll trade and make profit. But he threw in there, If the Lord wills, we will live. And he's pointing out to them, that you are a mist, you are gone, tomorrow like that, life is over. And it's only by God's providence that you wake up each day. It is only by the grace of God that we wake up with breath in our lungs every day. And he's pointing this out to these people. Now, this is again how we know this verse, verse 15, that these were Christians. Because why else would they care about God's will? James is telling them, if, you should say, if God wills, we'll go do this. Well, if they weren't Christians, they wouldn't care about God's will at all. He's reminding them that they should do nothing without considering God's plan. God's plan for their lives and His will. And then he really finally gets to the heart of the matter in verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all boasting is evil. So here we have the root of the problem. It's arrogance. It's pride. Another way to put it would be presumptuousness. These Christian business owners had taken their eyes off the Lord. They had stopped being utterly dependent on God's provision and His sustenance day by day by day and started to assume that, hey, I'm good. I've got this figured out. I know that I'm going to make profit. I know that I'm going to be okay. Their confidence lies in their own ability to wheel and deal, so much so that they are bragging about it. They've become cocky. They've become conceited and puffed up. And that's where their trust and their hope lies within themselves. So they had zero regard for God's will or God's plan on their lives. They were not seeking it at all. In essence, this becomes a form of self-worship and idolatry is what it becomes because we we begin to assume that we are God, that we control our lives and the circumstances within it. We're not looking to the Lord for wisdom or guidance. We're not praying to the Lord to get us through each day. We're just assuming it's going to happen. We're assuming that we've got this in the bag and we have zero dependence on Him. And so that's what James is addressing in this passage with these Christians, with these professing Christians. Now, I want to just take just a moment and say this. He is not condemning their desire to make money, okay? Let's be very clear about that. He's not condemning even their future planning, okay? Their their plans to go and do these things. There is nothing inherently wrong with these things. In fact, if we are to be good stewards of the things that God gives us, we have to plan ahead. We have to think ahead and we must, we must plan on doing certain things. So making money, planning ahead is not the root of the issue here. So we have to ask, well, where did they go wrong? And remember, we've already said It's that arrogance. It's that pride. The danger comes in, in what Kyle just read when he was doing offering. And I know Kyle well enough to know that he is so smart and can word things so much better than I ever could. He probably already knew what I was preaching and thought about that because he's like that. But if not, it's God's providence that he read what he read because I had it in my notes and he pretty much took my sermon and gave it to you guys in a much more eloquent fashion. So I could have just been done there. But Deuteronomy 8 tells us this. It says, beware, lest you say in your heart that my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. So as he mentioned, you know, teeing up offering for us. And as we've mentioned, anytime we've read this, like when we do this, we are we are when we collect offering. We are giving thanks to God for what he has provided in our lives. We're holding it with an open hand saying this was from you anyway. I'm just giving it back to you. It's yours, not mine. I didn't do this. So yeah, I might go and I might earn that paycheck, but who allowed me to wake up that morning? Who put breath in my lungs? Who gave me the ability to get out of that bed and walk, to go brush my teeth and get ready? It's only God's goodness and kindness that I can do these things. It's only because God grants it. And so these are all examples of God's common grace in our lives that we overlook so often. We have a tendency to forget these things and think that we have earned them or that This all becomes just because we do it. So there is a great uh, commentator uh, when I was studying for this sermon that I read that I came across. His name is uh, Douglas Moo. It's fun to say. And uh, so I'm going to quote him a couple of times. I want you to keep that in mind. So he says this, people not only leave God out of account in planning their lives, they brag about it as well, proclaiming in effect that their autonomy and independence from the Lord... That we begin assuming that we control the duration and direction of our lives, and such an attitude is simply inconsistent with a Christian worldview. So when we do this, it becomes sin. James tells us this in verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. We know that we are to always consider the Lord and His will for our lives. We are to depend on God daily. We are to be looking to God's plan and God's will for our lives, not just taking matters into our own hands. He's just told us this in verse 15. So to not do this is sinful. This is called a sin of omission, okay? We're going to get really technical for a minute. A sin of omission. So you have sins of omission and sins of commission, Okay, a sin of commission is when you commit a sin. It's something you do that is sinful. I murder, I steal, I lie, commit adultery. Whatever you're doing is sinful. Sins of omission are things that you do not do that result in sin. Things you ought to be doing, yet you are not. I'm not loving my neighbor the way I'm commanded to. I'm not honoring my parents the way I'm commanded to. Not praying not reading my Bible. I'm not gathering together on a Sunday morning with my brothers and sisters in the faith to uplift one another and praise God. Things I'm commanded by His Word to do. I'm not considering the Lord in my day-to-day planning. Things that God's Word tells me I am to do. When I do not do these things, it is sin. And this is just as serious, just as grave as a sin of commission. Okay, so we need to remember that. Verses 13 through 17 are a, are a very strong rebuke to Christians on what their attitude should be regarding wealth. We would do well to remember this and to heed this warning. And we're going to look at how to apply this to our lives here in just a little bit. But first, let's look at the next section. So chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Now, this section, he James turns his attention to non-Christians, okay? And this is how we can know that. Again, Douglas Moo says this the first section was written with questions, answers, and exhortations. This section, however, James 5 1 through 6, has none of that. James's style is that of the prophets, pronouncing doom on pagan nations. He relentlessly attacks these people with no hint of exhortation whatsoever. Now, he goes on to say this, and I found this very interesting. We talked about this in our home group. Uh, this past week, uh, a little bit of a history lesson on context and what was happening in that area with his listeners at the time. This period witnessed an increasing concentration of land in the hands of a very small group of wealthy landowners. Okay, as a result, many farmers were forced to earn their living by hiring themselves out to these rich landlords. Jesus's parable about the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20 is cast against this familiar rural background, and it is significant, don't miss this, that the workers expect their pay at the end of the day. Prompt payment would have been very important for the laborer who often got by at a barely subsistence level and needed steady income to provide daily bread for himself and his family. In a society where credit was not readily available, the failure to pay their workers promptly could jeopardize life itself. So this is the context for this section. It is addressed to these non-Christian landowners who are cheating their poor laborers and workers who were Christians out of their due pay every day. They, They expected to get paid at the end of the day to go buy that day's food and come home and feed their family. And they're getting cheated out of that. So again, chapter 5, look at verse 1. How does it start? Come now, you rich. Remember what I told you that means, right? Like, look here. It's another rebuke. We know that right out of the gate. He is rebuking. And he says, come now, you rich. Now, a lot of times in Scripture, and especially in some of these texts, when you see someone, when they address a people group and say, you rich, that is not a good thing. That is, that's a not a cuss word, but it was, it was a bad thing to be called you rich. This was not uh, a bragging on them at all. So he's telling them you need to weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you. This is very Old Testament language insinuating this pending judgment and doom on these people. These people are going to be judged by God Almighty. He says this about them. Follow me through these verses. Uh, Your riches are rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted. And it's in the last days that you've stored up your treasure and your wealth. All of this language, okay, whether, whether literal or figurative, paints a picture that these rich had hoarded their wealth rather than paying their laborers or using their things that they had to help others in need. They were greedy for gain, dishonest, and crooked. So you get this idea of treasure that they're just collecting and hoarding it up so much so and not spending it that it's just sitting in a pile rusting. They've got so many clothes in their closet at home, like the nicest things, that it's just rotting away in a closet. It's mothy, and they're not even wearing it, but they're certainly not sharing it with anyone. They're not paying anyone anything. It's all mine. I want it all. Because of this, James says that the rust of their gold and silver and the pay that they are withholding from their laborers cries out against them. That is the evidence that will convict them when they stand before Almighty God. What about this rusty silver and gold you were supposed to pay the people that were working for you? What about all these moth-eaten clothes that you could have helped clothe the naked and the needy with? That is the very evidence that will condemn these people. James says in the second part of verse 4, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He is confirming that none of these evil deeds have escaped the eyes of the Lord. He sees all. He knows all. And He will repay these wicked for what they have done. The NASB here, instead of Lord of Hosts, says Lord of Sabaoth. What this means when you see that word as Lord of Hosts is it's not just saying the Lord or the Lord of Heaven. This has a connotation to it, Lord of Armies angel armies, hosts of angels. This is this paints a picture of the cries of those people you're cheating have reached the ears of the Lord with an army behind Him ready to come to send upon you. It, this would have been a very, very scary thing to hear and to imagine. And he goes on to describe these, these rich non-believers in even more detail. In verses 5 and 6, he said, says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't resist you. So living in luxury, these rich landowners, again, had it all. They had the nicest things, uh, but they were fattening themselves for the day of slaughter. Now, anybody, you know, most of you guys will know in southwest Arkansas, anybody knows that about farming that if, you, if you're going to take an animal... To slaughter, what do you do first before you take them? You fatten them up, right? You get them ready. And that's exactly what these people were doing. They had fattened themselves for slaughter. They were teeing themselves up for judgment. Like, you've you've done a good job. Now get ready to pay for what you've done. This is exactly what was going on here. Now, James points out that the, the poor and the righteous, they can't even defend themselves against these powerful landowners. They're helpless against these rich, arrogant landowners. They were innocent. They're being mistreated. Their wages withheld to the point that they can't even provide daily food for their families. The result of this was often death by starvation. We've been reading through the book of Lamentations in our daily Bible reading, and, and we just came across a text the other day that shows how bad life can be when you're starving to death and I want to kind of give a warning here. This is a bit graphic, but this is God's Word, and I'm going to read it. Lamentations 4, 6-10 through 10 says this, For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot, They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the uh, fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. This is what starvation can look like when people are driven to despair. And it was not a pretty sight. And this is what these landowners are doing. Now, I'm not trying to take lamentations and apply it. to this. It's not exactly the same, but these landowners are withholding daily bread. Mamas can't feed their babies. Daddies are coming home empty-handed. Nothing to buy daily bread. And that's why it's saying that they are murdering the righteous, and they have no power to do anything to withstand this. So they're misusing their status and their wealth in an unspeakable manner. There was absolutely zero desire to honor the Lord or to help anyone. Now, again, I want to take just a quick moment to point out, just like in the last text, there is nothing wrong with owning land. Okay? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a wealthy landowner. It's all about the heart behind it and how you use it. God desires that we take what He gives us and we use it for good, to help others. When we do this, God will reward us. He may even reward you with more wealth as we see in the parable of the talents. But it's not promised. And that's why the attitude should always be if the Lord wills. It's not that I'm going to do these things. It's not, I know I've got this. It's like if God grants it, great. And if he does, I want to use it in a way that honors him and helps others. But I'm dependent on him daily, every single day for that daily bread. That's how dependent we are on God. So, this begs the question, okay, remember the book of James is addressed to Christians on practical living, right? We've talked about that. So, why would James include this section that's written to non-Christians in a letter written to Christians? Well, John Calvin had two reasons that he gave us for why he thought so. He says that, number one, James has a regard to the faithful that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune And two, knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs that they suffered, that they might, with calm and resigned mind, bear them. Perhaps James was trying to encourage his readers that these injustices would not go unpunished. Perhaps he was warning them, do not fall into this way of life. Be very careful with this. This is a a very easy thing to fall into. So it would do us well to take these warnings and to take these lessons and heed them and listen to them and consider them. So how do we do that? How do we we take this and apply it to our lives? We need to know how to clearly understand it before we can apply it. So studying it in depth and and trying to dig down and discern it is, is huge. That's the first step. And we have to ask, What can I take away from this? And what is the main point? Like, how can I sum all this up? And so typically, you know, we might give you this in the beginning of a sermon: like, here's my big idea. Here's, but I I wanted to wait till the end to point this out. That the main point that I'm trying to get across to you today, and I think James is trying to get across to his audience, is this: our wealth should be used to exalt Christ and his kingdom, not our own. All right, our wealth the things that God gives us, the thing that God grants us, any of that stuff should be used to exalt Him and His kingdom to help others and not build up ourselves. That's the heart of this passage. That's what I want you to take away from this. And again, your wealth, it could be money, it could be land, it could be your time, it could be your talents, your treasure. We we say that a lot. Any of these things are God's blessings on our lives and we can use them for ourselves we can abuse them or we can use them to honor the Lord and to help others and serve them because of what Christ did for us on that cross we should love the Lord with all of our heart soul mind and strength he should be the source of our confidence of our hope of our trust not my money not my job not my retirement account not my possessions, like none of that should be my joy, my pride in life. That's how I know I'm gonna be okay. Cause I've got a stacked 401k. I've got a great job. They're never gonna fire me. I mean, I am like the number one employee. None of that stuff should be the source of my confidence. That stuff can go away. But like, we we've learned that over the last few years. Like it just like that can be gone. So my confidence. My trust, my hope is in God Almighty who holds me and keeps me every day. And whatever He wills, whatever His plan is, I'm going to heed that. I'm going to obey that. I'm going to submit to that. We should live in total dependence on Christ every single day. And if He does bless us, let's use it to bless others and to advance His kingdom. So if you're in this place today and you are a Christian, okay, if you are a professing believer and you say, Jesus is my Lord, yes, I'm a Christian, then I want you to understand this, that we might read a passage like this and think that it only applies to those with loads of money, millionaires, billionaires of the world, guys that can buy Twitter. We might think that this is addressed to them and not to us, right, that live in Magnolia, Arkansas. But as Kyle pointed out, Here in the U.S., we are rich compared to the rest of the world. Here in our country, acquiring more and more and more is seen as a very good thing. Most of our closets would reflect this. Our toys that we have parked at our house, they're just collecting dust. We don't even use them. They have to be winterized because we don't use them that, that often. Jesus warns us in Matthew 19, verse 23, that only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. So we need to stop and ask ourselves, how much faith have I put in my own ability to work and earn wealth and money, in my paycheck, and how am I using the money that God's granted me? How tightly am I holding it? How quickly am I blowing it on things I know I don't need and not even concerning myself with helping others or how God would have me use this? Matthew Henry says that we are always to depend on the will of God, Our times are not in our own hands, but at the disposal of God. Our heads may be filled with cares and contrivances for ourselves or our families or our friends, but providence often throws our plans into confusion. All we design and all we do should be with submissive dependence on God. It is foolish and it is hurtful to brag of worldly things and aspiring projects. It will bring great disappointment and prove destruction. In the end. So, Christian, I want you to hear this today. Brother and sister in Christ, God is sovereign. Life is short. Do not put your trust in your own plans or in your own abilities, but seek God's will for your life. Live in utter dependence on Him daily and give Him thanks for what He blesses you with. If you have not been doing this, now is a great time to confess that to God and repent of that. Humble yourselves and submit to His will today because guess what? You don't know what tomorrow brings. You might think, you know what? Maybe eventually I'll do that. But right now I've got things going pretty good. But you don't know that tomorrow is coming. Don't wait till tomorrow to do this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and submit yourself to His will. Now, maybe you're in this place today and you're not a believer. Maybe you've never put your faith in Christ. Maybe you've never confessed Him as Lord of your life. Maybe some of this is new to you. Maybe you didn't grow up in church. I don't know. But let's just say for a moment that this is you and that you say, you know, I've never really submitted my life to God. I've never really put my faith and confidence in Jesus. Let me echo what James is warning you in this passage. That your money and your job and your 401k, your retirement, people... All of these earthly things are going to fail you at some point. None of it can bring true, lasting joy or peace. These are just tools that God's given us, but none of it can replace God Himself as our source of that that hope and that confidence and that trust. It's all going to go away at some point. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Any one of us, as I've already pointed out, any one of us could lose everything just like that. could be gone. Just this morning in my daily Bible reading, I came across this passage in Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 19. They cast their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. Riches fade. They go away. It's temporary, guys. Life is over so short, so quickly. Don't put your faith and your hope in money. Put your faith and hope in God alone. He's the only one that can satisfy. He's the only one that will endure. So what's the solution to this? Matthew 6, 19-21 says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Maybe you aren't a wealthy landowner. Maybe you haven't withheld wages from anybody or mistreated anybody. But where is your treasure? Where does your treasure lie? Think about that for just a moment. What is your most prized possession? What is your, your treasure? Is it your truck or your boat or your china collection or, or whatever? What is it? What, what's your most valued possession? The thing you care about and value more than anything else in life. Where does your heart lie? Are you totally submitted to Christ? Have you pledged your life to serving Him with your time, talent, and treasure? If you have not, I urge you today that you believe the gospel, that you make Jesus Lord of your life. As Romans lays out so well in Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then in 6.23, the wages of that sin is death. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ Died for us. And then we know John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. And so back to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then Romans 8:1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are all sinners. If you're in this place and you've never made Christ Lord of your life, if you need to submit your life to Him in all regards and stop depending on yourself, do that today. Understand and confess that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior. Put your trust in Him alone. Repent of your sins, turn to Christ, trust Him, and put your faith in Him and be reborn today. Do that while you still can because you are not promised tomorrow. Amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we are grateful to have been in this place today to gather together and open your word and read from it. God, I pray. I pray for everyone in this place that all of us could take a text like this and apply it to our lives and know that my riches, my wealth, my money, my stuff, none of it matters. It can all be gone in an instant. Help us, God, to walk daily and just utter dependence on You. Utter dependence on Your will for our lives. Help us to submit to that. Help us to to lay down our lives in submission to You. Teach us how to walk in Your ways daily, God. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in this place that has never done this, that has never submitted their lives to You, that they would do that today. That You would convict their hearts that You would pierce their hearts and minds with Your Word and that You would call them to Yourself. Forgive us, Lord, for when we fail to do this. Help us to remember daily to walk in that newness of life that comes only through You. God, we are so grateful for all that You've given us. We love You, Lord. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen.